Good morning. To wake up without fear, knowing you're safe. For those Irish citizens finally permitted to leave Gaza, peace. On Thursday's Morning Ireland, Irish-Palestinian Ibrahim Alaha told Kian McCormick about their 20-hour journey getting to the Rafa crossing into Egypt and their relief at finally escaping the shelling in Gaza. I was, believe me, I was crying. I was crying of happiness that we're out, we're in safety now, but also crying because a lot of people that I, I'm leaving behind me, a lot of friends, relatives and friends that have passed away, the beautiful city of Gaza that's ruined and all the nice memories I had. I mean, it was very, very mixed feelings. And reaching Cairo last night, arriving to a hotel with your family, what was that like? I mean, it was amazing. We were very happy once we arrived, especially after that long journey. Um, There's a small video I recorded with the children. They can't believe that they have to share their small spaces. They they can't believe they don't have to sleep on the floor anymore. Um, that they could take a shower now, that they could eat whatever they want, drink whatever water they want. It was really, really nice feeling. You sent me a text early this morning saying that last night was the first night in 50 days where you were able to sleep without fear, where your family felt safe. Can you explain that to me? I mean, every... Believe me, every night before I went to sleep, I was I looked at my children and I saying this could be the last the last moment I can see them alive. Every single night I feared that it's gonna be my last night. So now sleeping with all of that feeling away, oh it's so different. Uh, it was a I can't express how happy we are. From Morning Ireland. However, for millions in Gaza, the horror continues. And this week, Al-Shifa Hospital in northern Gaza was bombed, with Israeli troops entering the hospital saying they believed it to be the beating heart of Hamas, a claim the hospital and Hamas denies. On Wednesday's News at One, Brian spoke to Irish-Palestinian plastic surgeon working in that hospital, Dr Ahmed El-Mukalati. How many patients remain in the hospital? Are you able to treat them? What's their situation? That's the other part of the you know the story. The, the situation is really horrible. What we have is very minimal. We we just only run the small generators and lights. So we have no electricity coming into the ICU departments, no electricity coming into the operating theatres. And you come and you see the hospital totally in dark place. The basic needs of the patients can't be met. The lack of electricity. The other big issue we have, the main tanks of water and the water well of the hospital were attacked by the Israelis and now we have no water in the tanks. So there is no oxygen supply within the whole hospital. We can't uh, give the people any oxygen. Uh, so that's why we are losing at least five patients every day from the ICU as we have no oxygen there. We can't do any general anesthesia because everyone knows the general anesthesia, which is a very deep one, needs almost always oxygen supply. So we we are doing only the life-threatening cases. And this time we had to do two cases. We have done them with light sedation. The patient was screaming. So we are not helping the patients. We are losing the patient in front of us. They are slowly dying in front of us. Uh, We have 
We didn't receive any drinking water or food for the last six days. And before that was very minimal supplies giving only. So we are at the risk of running out of the food, the water, of everything at any point in the hospital here. From Wednesday's News at One. Now the Israeli military have said that there was a targeted operation against Hamas and not the civilians in Gaza. On Morning Ireland yesterday, Anya put this to Paul Cunningham in Israel. We heard those clips of Benjamin Netanyahu there, Israel. Uh, they're in control of the hospital now. Uh, he said they went in with doctors and incubators, that they found a command and control centre, that they're trying to do the right and moral thing. There's a communications blackout at the moment. What other claims are we hearing about what's been going on there? Yeah, I mean, uh, the Israeli Defence Forces um, said that they uncovered a Hamas tunnel shaft and this was being used by Hamas members. They say they also found a a vehicle with weapons inside the hospital complex and... um, over the course of the past sort of 48 hours they've been making videos uh, and sending out photographs of this evidence to prove, um, as they say, that Hamas was using it. Now, this is something um, we can't independently verify because we're not in Gaza and it's also something that not just Hamas but also um, medical administrators in the hospital are strenuously denying that this was um, a command and control centre. So we're, to a degree, stuck in the in the fog of war. Very clear statements being made there as you heard by the Israeli Prime Minister but we can't stand them up. And this was Anya's closing question. Despite the growing calls for a ceasefire, humanitarian pauses, aid corridors, it looks as though there could be an escalation of attacks in the south, in in, in places where people were told to flee if they wanted to be safe. Is that right? That's right. Um, Excuse me, as I understand it from the last figures I saw from the UN, about 1.7 million people were displaced inside Gaza, so they'd moved many of them from north to south. And because that was where the Israeli Defence Forces said they're going to direct um, their uh, targeting, and that was on the north. Now, in four different cities in the centre of Gaza and the south, um, the Israeli Defence Forces have advised people to leave without stating where they're supposed to be going to. And we do know that the you know, the circumstances inside there are absolutely dire. We heard yesterday from, I think it was ActionAid, and they said that um, 22 of the 35 hospitals in Gaza are no longer functioning. Three sewage pumps and 10 water pumps stopped working yesterday, resulted in sewage flowing through the streets. We've heard from other UN agencies that starvation is now taking a hold. So the situation is absolutely dire. But in the context of... Um, Israel and its military objectives. It is to destroy Hamas and they're going to continue to process that um, uh, desire. They're going to continue with the campaign. And that was clear from what was told to the Thonish to Michal Martin that um, whatever the world is saying, Israel has a military objective and that military objective is going to be achieved. From Morning Ireland yesterday. On the Clare Byrne Show, the EU's nature restoration law, it has finally gone through. And bogs which had been drained for farming now need to be re-wetted. 30% of peatlands by 2030, 40% by 2040 and 50% by 2050. Lovely round numbers. And these targets are actually lower than what was initially proposed. On the Clare Byrne Show, emotions running very high. Independent TD for Galway Roscommon, Michael Fitzmaurice and Green MEP Grace O'Sullivan. They did try to find common ground, but well, judge for yourself. Michael Fitzmaurice, adamant that farmers' livelihoods were under threat. Let's get a few facts straight here. There is no budget with this from the EU. 
because Denmark was the country that said they wouldn't support it if they had to give more money and there is no budget. It has been made clear the cap from 21 to 27 will not be, will not be affected but after that it was made clear to us that they were in Brussels. What does that mean now? That Farmers won't get any money for doing this. Is that well, your point? Well, there is no budget from Europe. I'm being, being very clear on this and there was promises made before under the Habitats Directive. Second of all, on the marine area, uh, Ireland is one of the biggest marine areas in Ireland. It was very clear that it cost us billions to try and um, basically bring the marine area up to standard. Ireland got that wash, that's watered down. But what has happened is there'll be 50,000 hectares as well as peat extraction sites that's going to be included in this plan. This will cause, forget about the farmer, forget about giving the money to the farmer. This is about communities in the west, northwest, in the midlands and the southwest. And what will happen is if you if you re-wet an, uh, the land that they have drained and shored, first of all, they won't be viable. Second of all, you will have land abandonment. Thirdly, you will have people moving from the areas. We are all our lives trying to build communities. We are all our lives trying to keep the football team, the local shop and everything going in areas. And what this will do, it will devastate that, that and it will cause, okay. it's the greatest land grab that ever I have seen. Well now, was there any way that this would pay farmers? If the uh, land is re-wetted, if the peatland is restored, does that mean it cannot be farmed? Is that what this means? No. So, so that again will be all part of the the uh, restoration plan um, that the Irish government is going to uh, prepare over the next two years. So, when uh, um, uh, with the rewetting initially, it was like the flooding of um, uh, land, but then we realised that actually you can increase the water table. Farming can continue uh, on land. Um, you know, so it doesn't have to be detrimental to uh, um, the grazing as currently is. The other thing, Claire, is that the European Commission has estimated that there will be, for every one euro spent on nature restoration, there will be a return on investment of about 8 to 38 euros. So what I see is that we will have creation of uh, uh, new jobs, skill jobs, in rural areas, we will have landowner incentives. So I know what Michael's saying about the, the EU government not coming forward with a big tranche of funding. But the Irish government, in uh, the budget of this year and next year, can um, ensure pay that farmers. there is... Pay, pay farmers, exactly. Pay farmers to farm with nature. Okay, what about and then to the claim that re-wetting bogs will ultimately decimate communities who live in those areas. We let them both off for this one. What do we do? Do we tell a family in Donegal or Mayo or above in Kildare or in your own county in Leash that they have to rewet their land? Do they need to live there? No is the answer. What will happen? Less people in a community. What will happen? More people moving in towards cities. This is the reality. We have also to look at. Well, have a look see, at. If, yeah, but hold on, hold on, if a system is approved where you're still getting an income from that land, you would want to live there. Okay. You would listen, want to yeah. live there. Listen to the Minister I, for the OPW I, I, on Galway Bay and on Kerry Radio in the last two days. Yeah. He says one person's rewetting is another person's flooding. Because down through the years, we have, regardless of whether it was right or wrong, built houses in areas exactly. where there's PG areas. Okay. And hold on. Exactly. Those areas. But, but hold on. But, but no, they're not. But the thing about it is, with what you're proposing at the moment, in the PC areas, will flood them. Grace. No, uh, Michael, Michael, you know and I know, like the, the bogs, uh, if they're re-wetted, they'll be good, they'll be carbon sinks. Uh, the fact that there was 
planning houses built on 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 wetlands is extraordinary that happened and it should never happen again. Hang on a sec, Michael, let me finish. The thing is, if we don't make these kind of changes, we will see, you know, if the, the whole bog, it acts as buffer zones for flooding, for water no, We're talking movement, about hydraulic. bog grids. We're hang talking on, about agriculture. No, Michael, I, I do want to know what will happen if we you, don't Michael, do this. Michael, go, go ahead, Grace. Said, yeah, Michael, Michael, you said, you know, I, I heard you there. I mean, it sounds like the voice of a climate denier there earlier. Well, like he, ha- he we, has said very clearly he's not. I know. But, you know, he's, Michael, look, what I'm saying is we, we have so many opportunities here and work with the government, not against the government. We're going to have a nature restoration plan. There's going to be a full consultation pro, uh, process. I know, Michael, I know you're, you will definitely engage, but bring people with you. Let's look at the options, the flexibilities there. And instead of going against, 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 let's go with something. Now, they went over and back for almost 20 minutes, but this was how it ended. If you were talking to people, Michael, in Newry or in Cork or in other parts of the country mm. where they had severe storms over mm. the last while yeah. and flooding and their livelihoods were destroyed mm. and we have the opportunity to do something to address that mm. now, to mitigate well, in the future. All, and you're saying no. First of all, if you didn't know Newry or if you didn't know Middleton, there, there is no bog around them. Uh, that's the first thing. Sorry, climate change is universal, yeah, yeah, Michael. Yeah, and you know that yeah, right are, well. Are you, say, are you saying to me that uh, uh, some farmer that's being put out of business in the west of Ireland is going to save the world. Let's get real about this. Ireland isn't going to save the world. Others have to play their part. But on top of that, the Greens are happy that we'll put a boat offshore, lose 50% of it to the atmosphere of gas, while telling a farmer somewhere in the west of Ireland that they have to flood their land and go out of business. That's not going to stack up, no matter how you do it. And I've been involved in more of re-wetting than anybody, because I've been involved with the National Parks, through the turf cutters. We've done three to 4,000 hectares. Uh, but I know when agricultural drain land is agric- that people have to make a living out of it and you cannot force these people to do that and, and no in, one's uh, forcing you, anyone Grace it was made very clear to us and this isn't coming from me by the department that 50,000 hectares has to be done between now and 2050 and the state does not know, own any of that end of story so it's farmers right. that has to pick it up. Listen, thank you both. Um, and uh, that was informative, uh, to say the least. Michael Fitzmaurice and Grace O'Shea. We'll leave that there. Back in a bit. Welcome back. After our peatlands discussion in part one, quite the furrowed browse. Now, biodiversity and colonisation. All in a new short story collection from Blind Boy Book Club. It's called Topographia Hibernica. That's quite the mouthful of a, of a title. It's the title of one of the stories. It's also the title of the, uh, of the collection. What specifically were you getting at with that? So Topographia Hibernica is also the name of uh, a manuscript from the 12th century, which is like, I consider it the first ever British tabloid. When, when Ireland was being invaded by the Normans in like 1170 uh, onwards, we'll say, while they were invading Ireland, they needed like an excuse to stay here. So it wasn't just a violent colonisation, it was an ideological one as well. So a fella called Gerald of Wales, he wrote a manuscript called Topographia Hibernica, which was like a story of the people of Ireland at the time. But what it did really is it completely dehumanised us. It was very surreal. 
um, he claimed that people up in Donegal ate birds that grew on trees and there was all accusations of bestiality and it was a way to make the Irish people appear not human and also to say that we defiled Christianity and then that's then used as an excuse to justify yeah. invasion and colonisation and the Pope at the time was English and so a thread that I was putting at with this book with this collection of short stories is that I'm fascinated by the relationship between biodiversity collapse and also colonisation so those are kind of the two themes And as he told Sean the impact of that colonisation is written on the landscape Ireland used to be rainforest and, and, and it, it, the, the whole point of colonisation is, is to extract resources from a country, to take a country over and extract its resources and mm. exploit the landscape. And folklore and mythology that's indigenous to a country always has a natural relationship with biodiversity. Like even up until the 1600s in Ireland, it used to be illegal to kill a, uh, a white butterfly. Yeah, because people believed that white butterflies contained the souls of dead children. Or people didn't mess with bees because people back then believed that bees belonged to the goddess Bridget and they would travel from the other world to fertilise our flowers. But what you have there is folklore and indigenous knowledge and superstition that actually keeps you in line with, with biodiversity and keeps you with a relationship with nature that's very restorative. But colonisation takes away the language, takes away the stories and then what you're left with is, oh, it's just a bunch of trees. It's just stuff to be extracted. Interesting stuff. Meanwhile... What has philosophy ever done for us? Sweet sound of one hand clapping. He's at it again. Joe Humphreys of the Irish Times gave him his answer. So, so it's given us all these disciplines like science and, yes. and morality and psychology. Mm. Uh, what else has it done for us? What else is philosophy? What else done is that's not enough? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess uh, it might be nice just to uh, look at a few practical skills. Right, so, yeah. I mean, one, one of the things is three, three stand out for me, I suppose. They're very practical. One is dealing with setbacks, one is how to figure out what's true or false, and one is, um, you know, figuring out how to live, flourish, and okay. be happy. So, so, if you take setbacks, I guess you go back to the Stoics, they're, they're the go to philosophers in this area, uh, and they just had a very simple observation that there's there's things in your that are in your control and there's things that are not in your uh-huh, control yeah. and it's illogical to get upset about things not in your control yes. so uh, and you have that in the serenity prayer and it's carried through in other things but they have a little twist I mean they have a nice way they, they talk about you know people if something bad happens to you you often say why me and they say well actually it's the gods as they saw it flattering you so they're saying the fact that you had some misfortune thrown in front of your mm. path Ray it's a way of saying that the gods thought your life is too good so they thought it test you test your virtue see if you could overcome this and it was a way of flattering you almost okay. so with friends like these but he did single out the writer Iris Murdoch for a special mention you're a big yeah. fan, I believe. Uh, yeah, no, yeah no, I was no. is crazy. Well, she, she's born in Dublin, okay. Blessington Street, Dublin. She's uh, one of the big moral philosophers of the last century. So she would, um, but she wrote a lot about love and, and a lot of us sort of, um, it's great to be loved, but often we don't think you know, what it is to actually love somebody else. So she wrote about what it is to love and loving, she compared to this notion of unselfing was her word. And it's, it's about what she, what she said, fighting against the big relentless ego that mm-hmm. we all have and mm-hmm. trying to, 
picture somebody other than ourselves to be real and to be, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, give them more consideration ourselves. Yeah. So it's a very difficult thing. She writes in great detail about this, skimming it here. But um, uh, what what's, she kind of makes clear, it's very hard to love somebody else. So, you know, when you think about that, you know. So we're not it, built it, it really. Just, Our egos aren't built to love somebody else. Well, it's a very difficult thing to do. And I think once you realise how hard it is, you realise, well, actually, you know, if somebody loves me and not everyone gets to be loved in life, not everyone has a happy child or has that thing uh, in, in their lives. You know, it is a really precious thing and you should really value it. But you also shouldn't expect other people to love you. You know, if you're if you're in a relationship and your you, your partner forgets something important or doesn't as able to read your mind, people can be very unreasonable. They think, well, if, if that person loves me, they should be able to know exactly what I need at yes. this moment. But it's very difficult for you to love. So why should you be you know so demanding of others? So I, I think what philosophy I, I like, if you like about it, it's different to psychology and some other disciplines. It's it's not like somebody saying you know you're great and patting you on the back it's a bit more like a, a bit of a tough realism it you know, asks the tough questions it asks us. tough questions of yes. it asks you to you know you've got to figure this out yourself and, and, and what Aristotle and all of them say is to flourish and to be happy it takes hard work okay. and, and takes effort and hard work and effort so says Joe Humphreys but and far be it from us to get into a bun fight in philosophy and happiness on Supercharged with Anna Geary. yes it is back a pithy one-minute guide to happiness from Brendan Kelly, Professor of Psychiatry at Trinity College. The the principles tend to be uh, seeking balance in pretty much all things. Um, you're focusing on love, and by that I mean for yourself primarily, as well as other people, because we are very tough on ourselves. Mm-hmm. Accepting certain things in life, we need to draw a line under some things and change what we can, and also be grateful for what is good. We can't rustle up gratitude for things that are bad, but we can increase gratitude for what is good. Comparing ourselves with other people is a very Mm. profound human tendency. We're not going to stop doing it. So the advice is to be aware of it. So avoiding comparison. And then belief is very important. Believing in something. Uh, For some people, it's religion. For some people, it's a a political position. Belief really helps bring meaning to life and that can bring contentment. From Supercharged. Now, earlier we heard that if the gods favoured you, they would afflict you with a calamity. What have the people of Oma in County Tyrone done to deserve this? Mm, Yes, the unidentified humming sound up north. Julian Fowler of the BBC brought Morning Ireland this. It's like um, vibrating noise, real loud one at night, but 12, 1 every night. Mm -hmm. Uh, Does it keep you awake? Not really now, but it did the first night. Sort of used to it now. Did you ever hear a thrasher? Thrashing corn? Something like that. Mmm. With Audrey, Stephen Donnelly, Alliance Party councillor. Is it there all the time or is it late at night? What time of the day does it come? It seems to always be happening at, at night time. Uh, I just heard in your clip there, one person referred to it being after 11 or, t- or 12 o'clock at night. And that seems to always be the time frame where it becomes evident. It possibly is because of the fact that around that time, traffic tends to be at its lowest point and it then becomes a bit more audible and tangible. But that seems to be the issue. Is it a, a relatively recent thing? Is it seasonal, as it were, maybe? Quite, quite possibly. I started receiving complaints about this in late October and from that point onwards, we, we initially thought that it was um, limited to the southeast of the town, but as time went by and people started to engage with me, it became clear that it was something that was affecting the entirety of the town. And the possibility is that it is seasonal, it's possibly re- related to weather, but I think the honest 
point at this uh, stage is that we don't know uh, the, the the actual origin and we have to be able to try and establish the facts first before we can secure a sol- solution. Facts, facts, schmacks. When we all know what this is, Audrey Carvel, never afraid to tune in to the vibrations. There is this phenomenon across the globe over the last 50 years known as the hum in North America, Australia. It could be a flying saucer. Just love that she asked that question. And Joe went one step further. Of course he did. The first sound we have is a factory buzz. Second sound is guitar amp buzz, an amplifier buzz. Third Uh, Number three is a fridge freezer buzz. Number four is an industrial air compressor. Number five is a generator hum. You know, too early for that. You get the drift. He had two callers from Oma on the line. After nine obnoxious hums, which ones were they going for? Definitely to me it sounds like the amp. Number two, can we hear number two again, yeah. Ruth? That, but not as loud as that, it's more different. Okay, we will lower it a bit. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Listen yeah. carefully. That's the sound. Yeah, to me it's more like that. Ja- Jamie, between one and nine, which one did you plump for? Yeah, like number two, but it's a smoother harmonics. It's more like it's uh, yeah. more like number three. I thought it's like it's a bit, it's a bit more subtle, a bit more smoother than okay, that. Okay, number two or three. Where yeah, are we between now? them two, between the amp and the uh, third one. Yeah, Can you yeah. hear it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of yeah, just like that. Yeah. Great stuff. Now all they need is for it to stop. Back in a bit. With apologies to our listeners in Oma. Welcome back. The Montrose mothership being steadied, maybe, or at least a new strategic plan, a slimmed down RTE, which means, among other things, 20% less people, 400 voluntary redundancies over four to five years, with particular targeting of those earning more than €100,000. Add to that a lot more outsourcing to the independent sector and a salary cap of grand for everyone including presenters. And then the state has agreed to fund RTE to the tune of 56 million. Reacting to the report, and in particular the staff reduction, Labour Senator Marie Sherlock on Drive Time. Do you not agree that unless the funding model is changed, it has to be a smaller organisation? Oh, oh I, like, and, and that, that's my, my, my first point. Ultimately, this takes place against the background of an acute funding crisis and, and uh, that, that, that ultimately RTE have been left uh, with millions of a deficit and they have they have been backed into this corner mm-hmm. to put forward a proposal which effectively sees the organisation much smaller over future years at a time where we actually we've never needed public service broadcasting it's it's never been as as, as yeah. important in the face of so many threats so so I'm certainly extremely worried um, about this very drastic reduction in the headcount in RTE I know from talking to, 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 to staff privately they say that they feel under-resourced as it is mm-hmm. but certainly I'm not clear as to how exactly RT is going to function into the future okay. Okay. and I think we're going to see a much smaller unfortunately a much smaller organisation And for the NUJ's Emma O'Kelly on the News at One increasing commissions from the independent sector which in her view might mean more precarious working conditions for those employees 
you will have programmes. There are programmes currently being made in RTE. They're being made by people because we fought and strove for this. They're being made by people who have good working terms and conditions, who get maternity leave, who can get mortgage approval because they have jobs. Those programmes will now be sent out into the private sector with public money and and the danger there is that there will be young, creative, talented people, you know, who are maybe coming out of college this year who will be working uh, in in a much more precarious environment. Now there is more investment in production in Cork, Limerick and Galway and an increased focus on digital funding. No plans to sell off the land, the value's not in it. But RTE will still have to find 10 million in cuts next year. On Drive Time, the Director-General Kevin Backhurst and with certain programmes up for outsourcing and perhaps cutting, jangly nerves around the water cooler. Cormac thought he'd chance his arm and see if the DG could be pushed to name names. Fair city. I know I'm not going to go into individual titles. So much, game. Much just mentioning the ones that have been... Yeah, I know. Born. I've seen those in the newspapers and that is pure speculation. But um, it's... Uh, uh, it's they're the only... We don't make an awful lot of programmes. Well, we do, actually. We well, do we, actually we, make... We a, don't, comparatively, uh, compared to yesteryear. No, we make fewer programmes. You could yeah. listen, Fair mm. City, The Sunday Game, mm. The Today Show, for example, mm. The Late Late Show. Mm. And there's a there's a very long list of programmes that we make internally, and actually, the, and you've only named a few of them, but I'm not going to get into... consideration, are they? No, we have a list of the ones that we would, um, that at the moment we're considering not making next year. So, and, uh, okay, but what are the ones that are safe? What are the ones? I'm not that... going to do that because that's another way of answering your question about which ones are not safe. So it's not fair for the programme teams. And then that presenter pay cap. No one to get more than the DG 250. So is he going to play hardball? It appears yes. Just listen for the balls. So there are a number of presenters on much more than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, when their contract comes to an end, are you saying 250, that's it, take it or leave it? Yeah. That is what I'm saying. And what if they leave en masse? Well, then we get another presenter. I mean, I don't want them to leave. We don't have that many who earn more than Director General. And a number of but the they ones. are household names, aren't they? Yeah, some of them are household names. Some of the names, biggest but... names in RTE. Joe Duffy, yeah. for example, Claire Byrne, Miriam O'Callaghan. Mm. Are but to name three. Yeah, well, they're hugely valued presenters, um, but we don't have that many who earn more than Director General. But I've said, I think this has been corrosive for RT for a number of years and we have to deal with it. What has been? High salaries that we've been paying presenters that are perceived as way too high. Mm -hmm. And I know the public will be behind you on this. Mm. um, But then other will point to a commercial reality and say, uh, what if they're poached quite easily now mm. if mm. Uh, the figure, the threshold is that high? Is that mm. something you'd, you're willing to, to sacrifice? I think we have to be willing to do that. Yeah, well, look, we, we're a significant employer here. You know, there are huge merits in being on, on RTE and the platform it gives you. And look, the three presenters you've, you've named there, they're all hugely valued and really important to us and would you know, sincerely hope um, that they stay when their contracts come up and re, 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 we renegotiate them okay. because... They are household names and we value, value them hugely. But, but we've you know, shortened the negotiation uh, very, very much on this programme. Take it or leave it 250. That's the message. Well, from if you say no one's going to earn more than Director General, then no one's going to earn more than Director General. Mm-hmm. So there. And more Life is a Roller Coaster radio moments. Ryan Tuberty announced he will be hosting a mid-morning show on UK station Virgin Radio. London-based reporter Vincent McAvinney spoke to Claire. This is no disrespect to Ryan Tuberty. I know he is a fantastic and consummate broadcaster, but 
the majority of people in Britain will be saying Ryan who they will not have heard of him. I know, you know, I've listened to a show in Ireland. I've seen the late, late show. Uh, he is, you know, a, a household name in Ireland, but apart from the Irish community here in London, uh, and the UK, no one will have heard of him. So this is going to be a real sort of, you know, this is a massive comeback for him and hats off at his stage in life to move to a new country, to start in a completely new and highly competitive media market. There are no expectations which helps him out and he can leave all the baggage behind of what happened uh, in the summer because only journalists like myself were pretty fascinated just in terms of how a media machine was operating we were looking across the water in newsrooms that i work in like the bbc and itv and seeing it play out but no one in the uk knows anything about that so it is a fresh start for him but he will have to build an audience from scratch Mm -hmm. Now, he'll also be presenting a dedicated Irish weekend show from London through the Wireless Ireland Group's network of regional stations. Q102, FM 104 in Dublin, 96FM down in Cork, Limerick's Live 95FM and LMFM. But the Virgin show, who is he going to be broadcasting to? How might it sound? You know, Virgin Radio, I think on average a week gets about 1.1 million. Uh, You're looking then compared to, you know, BBC Radio 2, which is about 12 million a week. He's not going in right at the top as he was at RTE on the nation's broadcaster. He's going into a small sort of upstarty commercial organization. And I do some work for them. I was at Times Radio yesterday. There is a bit of a cross-pollination between the stations, which I think will be interesting because there's two parts he can take. This will be uh, you know, very much playing the sort of hits from the 80s and 90s, friendly chats on Virgin Radio. But he does have an interest in politics. You know, I've got his JFK book. He does have an interest in news. If he wants to pursue that here in the UK as well, that kind of broadcasting, he's going to have to be careful not to be pulled down into the sister station of talk TV, talk radio, where they'll want strong opinions. He's going to have to try and make a beeline as well to do a bit of work on Times Radio. Uh, But he doesn't yet have the political contacts and networks he needs to be one of their presenters. So it'll be interesting to see how he operates here in the UK. And new to the parish, he'll be out to make a few friends. I thought it was fascinating when he was asked where he was going to live he immediately said Islington now (laughs) Islington for people that don't know is in in North London Uh, it's the home of the kind of new media and new labor in the 1990s it's where a lot of bosses in the likes of BBC and ITV and all those organizations uh, they all live in that you know it's, it's Jeremy Corbyn's constituency it's leafy lovely liberal North London and I think if he's making a beeline for there uh, and he's, you know, big buddies with uh, Chris Evans and talking about all their plans. He is going to be furiously networking. He'll be on the dinner party circuit there. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if he tries to find some kind of TV vehicle as an introduction. Now, he might, given, you know, what's going on here, just a story this week, say, for instance, it, the Rwanda story, you know, there's questions about the UK now pulling out of the ECHR. That would completely undermine the Good Friday Agreement. He could become a regular commentator in, in discussion shows and things, talking about uh, the Irish angle on, on news stories. Uh, but he could also want to do the shiny floor again. He might start popping up on uh, reality TV or quiz shows or game shows and try and build that profile out because he'll need to because this is such a small radio station. All change from The Claire Byrne Show. On Bowman on Sunday, Anne Yates and the man she refers to as father. His writing was terrible because his sight wasn't very good and he eventually lost sight in one eye and he couldn't spell. Um, I never learned to spell and for that reason I thought if father couldn't spell, why should I learn? 
but he couldn't spell and his writing was was really very bad and he was always revising he, he never stopped revising his, his work so there were always crossings out and things in the margin things in the line so yeah, his manuscripts were marvelous looking things very untidy but um constantly changing a bad speller who'd have thunk it but all of this from john bowman to mark the centenary of wb yeats being awarded the nobel prize for literature his son michael spoke about how they knew when he was composing a poem he would begin to make a sort of low tuneless mumbling sound and the right hand would be beating up and down and so we know we knew that he was uh, composing a line of poetry and so uh, we didn't interfere with him but at that time in fact he was totally oblivious to everything else once he began composing poems uh, so oblivious that one time my sister Anne got in the bus in Dublin to go out to our home in Rathfarnham and he was sitting in the front seat and obviously busy composing with the hand beating and the low mumbling so she sat in the back of the bus so as not to interfere and then we got to the family they got to the family gate and she got out and he got out and he looked at her vaguely and said oh who is it you were looking for and of course you can't have wb yeats on the radio without his very particular form of recitation the chanting oh the chanting and i shall have some peace there for peace comes dropping slow dropping from the veils of the morning to where the cricket sings. And then he said, if you ever hear poetry recited, otherwise than I have just recited it, write to me or to the BB and they'd switch them over. From Bowman on Sunday, but sacrilege abounds. Not a lot of chanting in this very beautiful offering from Thursday night's arena. The Solace of Artemis by Paula Meehan. I read that every polar bear alive has mitochondrial DNA from a common mother. An Irish brown bear who once roved out across the last ice age. And I am comforted. It has been a long, hot morning with the children of the machine. Their talk of memory, of buying it, of buying it cheap. But I, memory keeper by trade, Scan time-coded in the golden hive mind of eternity. I burn my books. I burn my whole archive. A blaze that sears synapses flaring cell to cell where memory sleeps in the wax hexagonals of my doomed and melting cone. I see him loping toward me across the vast ice field to where I wait in the cave mouth, dreaming my cubs about the den my honeyed ones, smelling of snow and sweet oblivion. The Solace of Artemis by Paula Meehan, read by, yes, Gabriel Byrne. Now, it is till November, so let's not get ahead of ourselves. We, we don't like to talk about Christmas too early. Uh, they actually beat the back of your legs with a stick here, if you do. I'm just looking at my producer, Siobhan. No, Christmas, too early. And I agree, you can't bring Christmas in too early. But you can do a Christmas warm-up story. I'm sorry, pardon? Which differs from a Christmas story how? We'll let it go, because the item in question involved documentary maker Ken Wardrop. The film's title, So This Is Christmas. Five different people, their families and their experiences on December 25th. And while the pressure to buy, buy, buy is just enormous, it isn't always those things that you'll remember. 
Again, going back to the genesis of this film, you know, I have a family member who put herself under so much pressure coming up to Christmas with her two kids and single mom really tries hard and wants to give everything to her kids that she adores. And yet I am here, a gay man without kids, and I'm looking at her going, you don't realise you've won. You've the won. Chris- you know, you, you've you got it. the boys with you on the sofa. They won't remember the presents again. Yeah, yeah. They'll remember the cuddles they get with you. And actually in the film, the young mum with the, the three kids, oh God, she's just amazing. And she, she, she complains about her financial situation. Obviously, it's tricky, but she does a disco with the kids and they absolutely love it. There's just this magic moment that you just caught and their kids just dancing around the living room and just have, and they remembered it and they talk about it. It's wonderful. It's really magical. That's it. Yeah. Who doesn't remember dancing around the kitchen with their mammies? Yeah. Like when a song, this is a memory that it sprung out. So when Loretta said that's what they do a tinsel dance every <laughs> Christmas, they call it their tinsel dance and it has to be to Joe Dolan. You know, and I was like, oh, could we not use a Christmas song? No, no, the kids wouldn't understand. The tinsel dance is to Joe Dolan. Brilliant. What a great idea just to have this moment. Again, wardrobe with Brendan. Ashquan. Can't resist. Me, oh my, you make me sigh, you're such a good looking woman. When people stop and people stare, you know it fills my heart with pride. You watch their eyes, they're so surprised, thinking for out of heaven. And if you listen to what they're talking about, talking about is walking about with an angel at his side. Simply not played enough. The and on Monday's drive time, Bernard O'Shea, he has a problem forgetting things. He has a solution singing. I generally do staying alive by the Bee Gees, right? Nice. So it's like, I've got to pick up milk, then go get some Diet Coke, and I better do it before tonight. <laughs> so that's what I generally do because I've never ever forgotten song lyrics or chord patterns, or I never forget music. I can always remember everything in music lyrics chords, how it sounds, the program, everything like that. But uh, two years ago, our eldest was making her communion and my wife was helping out of the church. She said, don't be late. Just don't be late. That's another thing. That, don't be late. We ha- she has to be in the church for half nine. So I was singing that morning going, we've got to be in the church for half nine, half nine. <laughs> got to be in church for half nine, right? And, and all the two of them were, were big enough to go, what song is that, right? So I said, oh, no, look, it's it's Fog in the Time. I think Gaza is in it and and I said, look, no, 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 you're not going to... So basically, we watched about 20 minutes of Paul Gascoigne uh, videos and uh, oh, Geordie Culture, and we were late. So well, look, like, you can't let me the way. My favourite, uh, Bird, is that you forgot you were on Dancing with the Stars. Just tell us briefly about that. Uh, I, I apologise to everyone in Shindewill and RT and all the lads. So I was just doing an interview, a radio interview, and the problem was it was live, and they said, oh, and what about the dancing? And I went, oh... Great program, love it. Uh, kids watch it. It wouldn't be for me now. I can't really dance, and uh, that's not. And they went, no, but you were on it. <laughs> oh yeah, I was on it. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, and but I've seen okay. episodes of Bridget Name, and I don't even remember being in the room. Like you know, whatever gets you through the night, you know. <laughs> and then yesterday, not your why, something in the water, the Darcy party songs that you have to dance a certain dance to. That one, or, or or maybe this one. Ocean, 
Uh, and then we got thinking at home, well, what are all the songs? Because remember that back in the day for a 21st or wedding and everyone sit down on the floor and then an annoying DJ like me would go and front and back and left and right and front. Remember? Yeah, yeah. And then you get up and you, somebody says to you, ah, look, look at your, the, the bum of your trousers there. It's covered in stale beer. And you go, I'm going to get that DJ man, that DJ man. Uh, but a lot of them involve just just staying standing up and doing things with your hands. Yeah, or, or this one. And it got me thinking, I, I think we like to be told what to do when we're on a dance floor. Uh, probably because a lot of us are self-conscious and we don't know what to do. So when somebody's shouting instructions at us, it, it's a lot easier. Sounds too complicated for me. It was a lot easier back in the day. More innocent times. <laughs> Oh, yeah. No, 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 no. Running <laughs> the off switch. <gasps> the horror. We would not do it to you. That is it from this week's playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week.